to be back with you. Happy August 9th. Next thing you know, it's Christmas. So we're, we're in this series, and if you've not been with us, maybe you've been online or whatever, but we, we were in this series from the Psalms, and we've got two more weeks. I'm, I'm excited for this and next. But the question that I want to put in front of you this morning is this question of what if, what if the Psalms can help us in the way we think about and process anger? And I was pretty excited when I realized that this was the week that I'd chosen for this uh, because it strikes me that if we know anything right now, we, we know anger. And I don't want to put words in your mouth or assume that you're an angry person right now. But uh, one of the stages of grief is anger. And whether we're aware of that or not, like we're probably all in this state of grief, whether you're grieving the fact that we're underreacting to, to COVID or you're grieving the fact that we're overreacting or you're grieving the fact that we're not wearing masks or, or we're not wearing enough masks, or even you're not even into that, but you're grieving the fact that like school and everything that you thought would be happening is, is in question, whether that involves your career or your daughter or your son or your football season or your business. I mean, we could just list, probably, maybe should have, just all the different things. You know, people who are working for the state are, are grieving different things than those of you who own small businesses, let alone, I was just thinking to myself yesterday, like, Adam, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Imagine if you were a church planter right now. I mean, imagine the grief that somebody who's started a business is feeling in this season. And so where, where I'm excited is I, I think the Psalms can help us actually begin to name the anger. And the thing that excites me about the Psalms is it's, I, I think they give us a path through, not around. So let's just start here. I, I thought, uh, let's just gauge how angry of a crew are you. And I'm not asking like in this moment, but I don't know about you. What I experience is I, I feel like I get on top of this and like, okay, I'm over it. I've got perspective figured out. Thank you, God. I got this thing figured out. And it just never fails. I have at least one day a week where I'm just, for lack of a I'm just pissed. And sometimes I can identify why, and sometimes I can't, but there's just this low-grade depression slash anger slash, I don't even know what I'm mad about. So, without persuading you, let's just go one to five, how angry are you? One is, uh, you make Mother Teresa look angry. Five is, you make the Incredible Hulk look calm. If you're married with your spouse, you get to vote for them. So we're going to switch it around here a little bit. So, and we're going to get rid of three. Justin's taught me that. Like three just ruins the whole thing. So just with hands in the air. So seriously, if you're sitting next to your spouse, you get to vote for them. So one, how many of you say like that you or they are a one? Hands up. Numbers. Not many ones. Man, that's, I wish my wife was here because I don't think she would go one, but it'd be nice if she did. Two. How many of you go like there are two? Wow, Linnea, you're, you're quite a woman. Uh, four. Okay, so I'm creating conversation for lunch afterwards because they're like, you just voted me a five? How many of you just go like, I think they're a five. I, I remember, maybe you were exposed to this, but I remember early in my evangelical church uh, experience, and I don't remember where it came from. I, I listened to a lot of sermons on the radio because I was working for Coca-Cola. I was involved with churches. I read some books. I met with some guys. So I don't know where it came from, but I remember there was this point where I, I picked up that you could pray for God to get rid of certain vices and they would just be gone. And I guess I don't question, I, mean, I guess I don't disbelieve that, though I would question uh, the, the veracity of that in today's world, but I, I remember that I, I just prayed, God, take away my anger. And I, I don't remember how long I prayed, I remember the number of times I prayed. I do remember sincerely believing there was a moment when God removed my anger, and it lasted like 10 seconds, and then I remember getting mad, and then as soon as I realized I was mad, I wasn't mad about what I was mad about, I was mad that I was mad again. 
what I wish is that someone would have pointed me to the Psalms, because here's my bias, and I've kind of been bringing this to the surface in this series. Walt Brueggemann, this great Old Testament scholar, he, he's the first one I bumped into who suggests that, that one way to read the Psalms is just what Tommy referenced, and that's a great way to read the Psalms, is to look at them individually. And of course, individually, they have context, they have, they have theology, they, they have humanness, they have value. But it's Walt Brueggemann who first exposed me to this idea that another way to read them, not, it's not a bull fan, it's just another way to read them, is to zoom out and recognize what we have are 150 psalms. Now, at some point, we have 150 psalms, rather, written by multiple people over multiple lifetimes, which would mean no matter what you believe about the existence of the Bible and to what degree there's a human factor and to what degree there's a God factor, not unlike Jesus and his being God and human, same things work in how we believe the Bible, but all the same, what that means is at some point, some editor, some, some curator, some person was working through the archi- walking through the archives of the warehouse of the museum and was choosing which Picasso paintings are we going to put on display because we don't have room for all of them. And they gave us what we know as the book of Psalms. Now, probably this happened in exile, but what we know is they're not given to us in in a total chronological order, though next week we're going to explore there is a thematic order to them. But they're given to us with, with with an arc. And so what we've been exploring is one way to look at the Psalms is to zoom back, to zoom out, and go, what's the editor saying via the whole 150? And we started the first week by exploring this idea that this is a God who wants us to take our turn, that this is a God who wants us to talk, that that one of the ways you make sense of some of the nonsense of the Psalms and what's said is you place value on the conversation over what is said, that this is a God who, who wants us to talk about God, yes, who wants us to think about God, yes, but who does not want to play Google in our hearts. That I think, I know I'm guilty of this, and this is what we explored that first week on July 2nd is to move from God scans all my thoughts, could get into conspiracy theory here, but God scans everything I think and extracts from that my prayer. That's one theology of prayer. But the Psalms would say, in addition to that, this God actually wants you to articulate the words and, and, and to speak prayer. And the permission is that it doesn't have to be sanitized, it doesn't have to be accurate, it doesn't have to be something that would, we would catch Jesus saying. It just has to be real. And then in the second week of the series, we looked at this religious formula that the book of Psalms opens with this very black and white Psalm 1, do this and it'll go well for you, don't do this and it'll go poorly. And it emerges on the other side after much trial and error and travesty and suffering with the psalmist just going, well, here's what I can tell you, God's good. What I want to suggest this morning is I think there's a third theme at least a third theme, certainly there's more than that, and it has everything to do with anger. Because if you spend time with the Psalms, or if you've tried to and stopped, which was my experience, you you quickly are confronted with the fact that, man, there's some stuff said in here that, like if your non-Christ-following friends read it, they would use it as leverage to say, see, this God is unlikable. Let's just look at some of those examples, because I think to to be honest with the anger in the Psalms is an important step. I'm going to start in 58. Uh, Verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance done. I mean, this is insane. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. People will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. I mean, imagine playing that one on social media and then going, no, Jesus is a great guy. 94.1, O Lord, you God of vengeance, you God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Give to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? 
And we're going to talk about anger and the desire for vengeance and how they really, uh, as best I can tell, they interplay. Then let's go to Psalm 149. And to me, I'm going to read this whole psalm, but to set it up a little bit, it reads like something that you would check out while listening to at a common kind of worship gathering. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I just mean like it's full of the type of things you would expect to hear at church. And then there's this transition that happens, which is also a part of what they would have done while going to church, so to speak. Watch this. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion, that's Israel, or Jerusalem, rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to join with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with victory. Let the faithful exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their couches. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. And then here's the transition. And two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nation and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters and their nobles with chains of iron, to execute on them the judgment decreed. So this is why we think that this is probably written and, or assembled in, in exile, because there's this need for, like, come on, God, solve this. This is the God for whom his faithful ones, for his faithful ones. Praise the Lord. By the way, one of the other truths of anger in the Psalms, and this is where I think COVID is a perfect time to talk about it, is the enemies are easily made metaphor. It can be a person. It can, it can, it can also be a disease. It can be something animate or inanimate. It can, be, it can be any number of things. That's one of the great permissions, and I think why we struggle with the Psalms is in our Western brain, we've so told, been told that everything has to be read through this literary criticism lens and for better and for worse, that's not the way the Bible's always been read. Metaphor was a major function of Scripture. But it all leads to this question of, so what do you do with this? Like, your friend who's kind of thinking about Jesus plops their Bible open and goes, okay, so Psalm 58.10, bathes their feet in the blood of their enemies. Like, how do you defend this? And the first observation that, that Walt Brueggemann made that was for me just this kind of like, whoa, I could sit with that for a long time, was we could apologize for it, we could do lots of things with it, but, but what if, what if it's in there because it's in here? Like, like, what if the Psalms portray anger because their primary interest isn't to be sanitized, but their, their primary interest is to actually represent the human experience? Like, what if this is indicative of a God whose authors of scripture really understand what it means to be human, and therefore, first and foremost, it's in the Psalms with all of its brutality and embarrassing nature. It's in there because, if we're honest, it's in us. Listen to Psalm 139. This is one of the easiest ones to pick on because this is, to me, one of the most vivid. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil. So it's not about me, it's really about you, God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. Like, feels so oxymoronic, doesn't it? I count them my enemies. What if it's there because it's here? And that's the starting place. And in fact, Psalm 139 beautifully makes this point because listen to the way Psalm 139 starts. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. So it's not that God can't. 
You search my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. Now, we want that to then go through and follow through with all kinds of future warm, fuzzy things. Ironic, isn't it, that it transitions to this place of, oh, yeah, and you know the anger inside of me. What if part of the gift of Scripture and part of living under the authority of Scripture involves trusting that God was, in fact, involved with this editing process, but what if part of the gift is that it knows you? Which is this reminder to me that Dallas Willard, one of the things he says is we shouldn't decide whether or not we believe the Bible and then read it. We should read the Bible and then decide whether or not it works. What if it works? What if it's this gift of self-understanding? Not the only one, but certainly one of them. Think, think of like, the, like of Christmas. I mean, there's at least a, a couple different types of gifts that you get, right? Like there's the type that like you circled it in the catalog or you cut it out and put it on the refrigerator. There's the type that when you open it, you're like, I knew I was getting this. I kind of wish I'd had it a month ago, but thank you. And, and those are great gifts. And then there's the type that's like, didn't know these existed. I have a wedding to go to next week. There's that type of gift. <laughs> and then there's the type that, of course, you didn't know it existed and it proves to be like, man, I, I didn't know these existed, but that, this actually turns out to be a cool thing. But then there's the type that, that just says like, and I'm not trying to put them even on a hierarchy necessarily. I think there's, there's functions for all of them. But then there's the type that just says, well, like, you, you pay attention to me. It's not that you circled anything. It's not that you even maybe said you wanted something. But someone just, they just knew you well enough to know, like, I'll bet you'll really appreciate this. What if that's why, for thousands of years, People have like so firmly stood on the value of the scriptures in their life. And what if that's what we see going on in the Psalms? Is a God who understands that anger's in us. Which would then lead to the degree that it's true to a few observations that I think we can power through because I think it leads to more questions. But the first one is simply this. That anger in the Psalms, go ahead to that next, yeah, thank you. Anger in the Psalms gets expressed by acts of speech, not physical acts. Like there were some clips I wanted to show of like George Costanza and different things this week, but there was just this trepidation of none of us wants to trivialize the reality of anger and where violence can lead. And, and in the Psalms, part of what we see is that they're, they're, they're acts of speech. And second, and I think what builds on this and of even greater importance, is they're acts of speech directed to God, not to the enemy. Which kind of gets maybe at the heart of it. Like maybe the permission here is I, I know you're going to struggle with anger and things are going to make you mad and things are going to be disruptive and your business is going to get blown up and all these other things are going to happen. So talk to me about it. Like Jesus says, pray for your enemies. And I guess my question would be to what degree is that for benefit of the enemy and, and to what degree is that for benefit of you? Because if you're talking to, the God that's, to God about the stuff that makes you mad, then you'll be all the better for it. It reminds me a little bit of this principle that Fred taught me. It was one of the very first things he ever... It's what I retain the strongest as it relates to marriage. Fred was this mentor of mine, and one of his principles, some of you have heard us talk about this before, one of his principles is that he and his wife, Joan, and I think they're getting close to 40 years of marriage now, and one of their principles was never to be the other one's Holy Spirit. And what he meant was that when, when he bumped into something that his wife was doing or she bumped into something he was doing that he felt was wrong or just annoying, like chewing ice, that's Teresa and I. like, I can't take chewing ice. It is the worst. It's okay when I make sounds when I chew, but when she makes sounds when she chews, it's the worst. But, so the, the Holy Spirit thing, uh, 
his point was, like, if she's doing something that's bugging me, then I'm not going to talk to her about it. He, he, Fred would say, this is what he meant, like, I'm not going to be her Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk to God about it. And his deal with God was, God, if, it's, if what's bugging me, that what she's doing is bugging me, if that's, if that's her problem, then I'm going to trust that one of her girlfriends or some book she reads or, you know, some pigeon from the sky or just you through your Holy Spirit, you talk to her about it. And if the problem is me, then I'm going to trust you're going to work that out with me. But his point was that people don't thrive in an environment where they're constantly being evaluated. And as someone who's met with over 20,000 married couples in his lifetime, he would now all the more say, it just doesn't work when two people are kind of trying to form the other one, one the other. Now, that could sound overly passive, and Fred's not. And I get that it has trickier application when it comes to parenting and leadership and all these different things, though I think it probably applies when your kid turns about 13 anyway. That's one of his other principles, is if, if you haven't taught your child what, they wanted, what you wanted to know by 13, you've lost the right to teach it to him. But the bigger point is, what if part of what's going on here is God going, tell you what, you talk to me about what it or what they or what them, what's going on, you talk to me about what's ticking you off, and rather than lead you around that, I'll lead you through it. See, we, we know that like grief works best when given full articulation. What if anger, which is a function of grief, works best when giving full articulation, but the safe place is to articulate it with and to God. Which would lead to this third observation that I think would then come into play, and that is uh, that the Psalms are clear that vengeance belongs to God. Now, how that relates to countries and militaries, and I mean, those those are huge conversations. But one thing the Psalms affirm over and over again is this deep, worldview that says, at the end of the day, God, justice is your problem. It's your deal. O Lord, Psalm 94 once more, O Lord, you God of vengeance, you God of vengeance, shine forth. And one of the ways the Bible maintains its moral coherence is this claim that God is just. And one of the the great conversations that happens cover to cover is, okay, if God's just, then how is he merciful? And if he's merciful, how is he just? And this brings us back to this place in Hosea. We talked about this a while ago, but this was, for for me, a game changer. Some people would call Hosea chapter 11 the Mount Everest of the Bible, or one of them, because it speaks to that question, how does God balance mercy and justice? And let's just look just real briefly. In chapter 11, again, this is like guys like Dr. Delamarter who who's this great scholar, he's going, this is among the most important places in the whole Bible. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. So the core problem in the Bible, right? Like idolatry. This is God the Father speaking of God the Son and the daughter going, not I don't love you. Love isn't an issue. What's at issue here is you're not doing the job I had for you. And then God the judge. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So now you have God going, okay, because of that, justice has to happen. But this is the the big piece. This is where God the father, God the judge, becomes God the father, judge. How can I give up, give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And then watch this, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender, I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the moment, and the reason they call this one of the Mount Everest is because this is the moment that assures us that for God to be just, his desire for justice is going to have to turn on God's self because God has this profound character flaw and that it's this, his compassion holds more weight than his justice. But I wonder if part of the process of being an image bearer and part of the value the Psalms give us about focusing our anger towards God is that it's in that slow play that God leads us through this place of, first of all, reassurance that God is just and vengeance is his, but more than that, to this place where God reminds us that more than just, he's compassionate. Maybe it's in the process of praying for our enemies that that we're reminded that the character of God is most unique in the steadfast love of God, the self-giving love of God. Because not only does this give us the cross, and a God who turns that need on God's self, but it, it also gives us this remarkable idea of upside-down, left-handed power that, that ultimately God does his work not through his right-handed stern anger, but through his left-handed compassion. And to whatever degree that's true, I think it would lead to this question of, okay, so who are you mad at? I actually know a guy who meets with people regularly, thousands of them, and and if they start a session by talking about this or that bad thing going on, he'll just go, who are you mad at? And they'll go, what do you mean, who are you mad at? I told you my wife's a moron. He's like, no, no, who are you mad at? Well, in that case, his wife. Because his fundamental belief is that when we get all sideways, the core issue is there's anger that we're not processing in healthy ways with God, and if we can deal with that, we can get back on the track. So, so what's, what's the thing, what's the circumstance that maybe you just haven't actually just said to God, like, God, I'm... Frankly, I'm really ticked about that. Maybe your anger is at him. What if God can handle that? So I'd like to pray, and then I'd like to have a little conversation. God, um, just even now, God, going, okay, here it is. Here's this thing. And trusting God that through a consistent process of that, you can lead us uh, to be an image bearer, Uh, in the truest sense of the word in this time of great need. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.